We read this morning Psalm 66. Psalm 66, the call to worship was found in verse 8 and 9. We sang it in Psalter 174. We're going to sing it again in Psalter 175. And our text is in verse 16. Psalm 66. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say unto God, How terrible art thou in thy works. To the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee, and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in His doing toward the children of men. I may pause a moment in verse 3 and verse 5. You find that word terrible. It's somewhat synonymous to the word awful, and we misunderstand both of them to mean bad. God is not bad. He's not evil. But He is terrible in the sense that what He does fills us with Awe. Awe. And that's what that word awful means too. So we're speaking here, the psalmist is, about his, uh, verse 3, terrible works, and verse 5, terrible in his doing toward the children of men. There's a, a good reason that I call your attention to that now. I want to come back to that in the sermon. That's a very important word. Verse 6, He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in Him. He ruleth by His power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of His praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our foot our feet to be moved. For Thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But Thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into Thy house with burnt offerings, I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks and goats. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, Lord, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That's the reading of the psalm. The text, as I said, is verse 16. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what He hath done for my 
soul. Psalm 66 is familiar to us in its versification in the Psalter. Beautiful versification that versifies our text. The versification is this. Come here, all ye that fear the Lord, while I, with grateful heart, record what God has done for me. And then it goes on. I cried to Him in deep distress, and now His wondrous grace I bless, for He has set me free. That's our text this morning. That's found in a psalm that doesn't begin that way, but begins very, very broadly. We need to see the text in its context to understand the beauty of the text. The context of the text is the psalmist calling the people of God to see. Come, he says, motioning to them. I want to show you something. And what he wants to show them must elicit praise from them. That's why verse 1 begins as it does. Make a joyful noise to God. In verse 2, the psalmist calls the people to sing. And in verse 2, make His praise glorious. Well, what is it that God has done that elicits praise from the people of God? Well, first of all, David says, I want you to see with your eyes how God reached down. Look, there's going to be a lot of motions in the sermon today and took the sea and parted it so that the people could go through on dry land. That's the heart of what God did. Because God loved us, He delivered us from the land of Egypt, brought us through the baptism of the Red Sea, and pointed our nose home. Look at what God has done. And then he goes on to spell that out in different language and says, God is awesome in all of His works. He's terrible in His doings toward the children of men. In verse 7 and following that comes up to our text, He says God even rules over men for our sakes. Even when men ride over our heads, God controls that for our blessing. He says, the psalmist does, that the Lord laid a net for us. He took us through fire and through water. And all of those things put together elicit from the people of God a glorious song of praise. The psalmist says, I'm going to praise God. Now come and join with me to praise Him. But then the psalm turns. And instead of saying, come and see, the psalmist says, Come and hear. Listen. And now I'm not going to tell you what God did for us generally, but I want you to listen to me while I record what God has done for my own soul. And that's what makes this psalm very, very unique. What makes this text stand out among almost all the other passages of Scripture. There are very few where we are called to tell other people, come, sit down with me, and I want to recount to you what God has done for me. That's a personal testimony. And that's why the psalm, as it's versified in Psalm 175, is titled, Personal Testimony. 
If you ever noticed that, maybe you became nervous and maybe you even realized that the Psalter a hundred years ago and more was written very well for the most part, but by some who were not so strong in the Reformed faith, perhaps you say. And that that's why personal testimony was allowed to be the title of this Psalter number. But you would be mistaken. That's not a bad title. It's the right title for this psalm and for this text. Don't be nervous that this is an Arminian practice to give personal testimony. Don't imagine that only the Baptists do this and that certainly the Reformed believer doesn't do this and especially not a Protestant Reformed believer. Grow with me in your understanding of the Word of God where all of the people of God must be able to say, as the psalmist says, motioning, now come, come. I want to tell you a little bit about what God has done for me. This is a personal testimony of a saved soul. That's the theme of the sermon this morning. Personal testimony of what is the first point. Personal testimony to whom, that is, who is this that is in his audience. And then personal testimony, why. A personal testimony of the saved soul. Testimony of what? Testimony to whom and testimony why. I want to be very focused this morning when we talk about the what. What does the psalmist say? And I want to isolate what he does say from what he doesn't say, some of which is permitted and some of which is not permitted at all. I want to look at four things that the psalmist in our text does not do. In the first place, the psalmist does not say, now, I want to continue on what God has done for us together as a church. He's finished with that. That was the first part of the psalm. He could have gone on in that, and we can take a lesson from that too. We ought to be able to tell other people what God has done for us as a church and as people. O God, we sing, we have heard, because our fathers have told what Wonders thou didst in the great days of old. We ought to be able to wax eloquent about what God has done for the church. But that's not now what David continues in. He doesn't either say, and this would be permitted also, what God has done for his earthly life. He could have done that. He was healthy. He was strong. He was materially gifted. And he could have said, God has so abundantly blessed me with these things I want you to know that. And we could do that too. We are rich, and we are rich in abundance like the church has hardly known in all of its history. But that's not what we are talking about in this text either. Nor does David, or the psalmist, whoever the psalmist was, say here, I want you to know what I have done by the grace of God. That could be permitted in a personal testimony. David could have waxed eloquent about what he did by the grace of God. Do you know that when I was a boy, I took a bear with one hand and slew him with the other? And I did the very same thing with a lion? He could have said that. In fact, he did once. 
When Saul said to David, who was about to go take on Goliath, you're too young, David said to him just that, I slew a bear and I slew a lion, and I am not afraid of that brute. And then later David could have said, I slew Goliath with the first stone that came out of my slingshot. By the grace and the help of God, I did these things for the sake of the church. And if you want to know a little bit more, when Jerusalem was still inhabited by the Jebusites and we couldn't dislodge them, I did that with my soldiers by the grace and the help of God. And we could do that too, very carefully. Say what God has done through us, by us. We've preached many sermons. We've overseen the lives of the people of God as elders. We've ministered mercy as deacons. We've taught children in school. We've labored on school boards. We've ministered silently and nobody knew it. We could go on and on as to what we have done by the grace and help of God. But that's not this text either. All of those would be permitted, but one thing David doesn't do certainly, and that would not be permitted, is to say what God, what he had done for his soul. None of that. Because David was not an Arminian. David was not a synergist. And a synergist simply means one who believes that God and man together labor to accomplish man's salvation. And energy, synergy, That's together with someone else accomplishing something. David was no synergist. He was not an Arminian. He was a Calvinist, if we may speak of him that way. He would never say, I want you to know what I did for my own soul. And now we've isolated those negatives out. David simply says, I want you to know what God and God alone did for my soul. He saved my soul and He made me His. He saved me. Now David spells that out in the psalm in language that we can understand even in the dim light of the Old Testament. Look how he spells that out. One, I was in trouble. Trouble. That's verse 14. My lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. Two. That trouble was so serious that he could not rescue himself. Have you ever been in a predicament where you could rescue yourself? Have you ever been in a predicament where you could not? That's what David is talking about here. The depths of my trouble was that there was no help for me unless someone came to my rescue. That's why the psalm ends the way it does with a reference to mercy. Blessed be God. Here's the climax of it all. Who has not turned away my prayer nor His mercy from me. Mercy is God's attitude of pity looking down upon us who are in misery. Misery. And the misery is such that we are helpless in our misery. Hopeless in our misery unless someone comes to rescue us. Three, my misery is my sin. Not your sin. 
Not their sin. My sin. That's why verse 18 speaks as it does about iniquity. Oh, David knew iniquity. He knew this is what was his trouble. This is what he could not rescue himself from. The depths and the breadth and the filth and the power of sin. His sin. His original sin. His actual sin. His guilt. His shame. His pollution. His sins of omission. His sins of commission. He violated God's law. He broke God's covenant. He hadn't kept his vows. He offended God, the good, gracious, kind God who gave him a place in his house and allowed David to sit with his feet under God's own table. I have sinned, David said, against thy grace and provoked thee to thy face. That's what David is talking about here. And that's what God did to his soul. God rescued David and delivered David from that great trouble. And that's four. When David makes this testimony, motioning the people of God to come and sit with him and listen to him, you must picture, although David would not have been permitted to do this, but just in your mind's eye, picture David standing in a particular place in the temple or tabernacle with his hand on the altar. This is what God did for me. When I cried to Him in my distress, and now His wondrous grace I bless, this is what I want to tell you about. And that comes out in the text in verse 15, when He speaks of the sacrifices of fatlings, the burnt sacrifices. And in verse 13, the burnt offerings. He wants you to know that He understood that the substitute that was offered there was a substitute for Him. And that what he deserved, the wrath of God coming down on him in a flame of fire, he didn't get. Because God provided a substitute for him in his sins. And said, I am not going to destroy you. In fact, I am going to accept and receive you. I love you. I'm going to punish someone else in your stead. David says to the people, come please, I want to tell you, that's what God did for my soul. There's nothing more important in all of the world than that. And for the people of God today to do the very same thing. It's easily translatable into New Testament language, isn't it? Now, though we don't do that, just picture in your mind's eye that you stand with your hand on the cross. And you say to the people of God, I want you to come, please, and listen what God has done for me. I was in trouble. Deep trouble. The trouble wasn't your sin. The trouble wasn't their sin. The trouble is mine. And it was such trouble that I couldn't rescue myself. I was in misery. Such misery that if I would explain it, I would not be able to. Hell was coming to me. My iniquity, my sin, my guilt, my pollution, the things I failed to do and should have done, the things that I did I should not have done. 
my shame, my corruption. I offended God. I know that. I sinned against His grace. I didn't keep my vows. I broke the covenant. I deserve everlasting damnation. But God, God came to me, provided a substitute for me that I did not deserve. And instead of His wrath coming upon me, it came upon Him. If you want to know in one word what God did for my soul, Christ. Christ. It's all Christ. Christ for me, Christ in me, Christ with me. It's all Christ. Christ for me. I'm not going to die because He died in my place. Christ in me. I'm not only not going to die, but I'm going to live. And I do live in the life that I live now. I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave Himself for me. Christ for me. Christ in me. Christ with me. He's my brother. He's my friend. He's my companion. He's my bridegroom. He's closer than any brother on this earth can be. He's mine. Christ makes a place for me in God's house. I put my feet under God's table. I have a place there, not because I deserve it, but because He gave it to me. My life is Christ. My soul is at peace. I'm full. I'm satisfied. I'm at rest if I have my Lord Jesus the Christ. And you could go on and on, couldn't you? On and on. And I say that not because I could go on and on, but because the text requires us to say that. The form of the verb in verse 16, Come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare. That verb, will declare, has dimensions that are important. One of those dimensions is that I will recount one by one every single element of what God has done for me. So what you ought to see in this text is a condensation of or a summary of a sermon that David went on and on with. We don't hear everything he said to the people. We hear a part of what God, what David said. And there's another dimension of the verb that shows continuous action so that it's not only individual elements that you need to make sure you get all of them, but it's Keep on saying what God has done for you. Don't ever stop. Let this be a part of your life forever and ever. Tell the people of God what God has done for your soul. And shall we look at the text and its context and see some of that? Especially the trials that God sends the people of God to purify them and strengthen them. Think again of what he says in verse 11. It brings us into a net, and we're trapped at times. He lays affliction on us, on our loins. He uses wicked men often who ride over our heads, and our experience of that is that we're going through fire and through floods. God always takes us out into a wealthy place, beautiful psalm, a wealthy place, more and more and more, we go on and on and on. Come, come, we say to each other. Let's talk together. I want to hear what God has done for your soul, 
And I want you to know what God has done for mine. Now the application of this first point is a specific application with regard to catechism because I made this sermon recently for the confession of faith of some young people in Zion where I'm preaching regularly and a grandson who's going to make confession of faith, God willing, next week in Hudsonville. The application has to do with catechism, but you'll see why it's appropriate to apply it this way. It's catechism instruction that enables us to make that personal testimony of what God has done for our soul. Catechism does that. You learn, children, in catechism exactly what God has done. And you learn what God has done for you. And then as catechism means literally to echo back, you repeat what God has done. And you repeat what God has done for you. If any of you children are in your first year of catechism, you remember back about ten weeks and the first question of the first book asks this, who is your creator? And you answered, God. And the next question, did God create all things? And you said, yes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next question, how do you know this about creation? And your answer, God tells us about in about it in His Word, the Bible. That's in the first year of catechism. And you go all the way to the end of formal catechism, that at least is our curriculum, to the Essentials book. And the first question in the first book, in the first lesson of that book, asks this, what is above all things precious? And you say, God. The answer goes this way. The knowledge of the true God through Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That's precious. That I know Him. And then the last part of that last book asks, what is the blessedness of the new heaven and the new earth? And you say, to dwell without sin in the blessedness of God's everlasting covenant of grace. Catechism teaches you to say what God has done for you. And it goes on and on and on. It's not the gospel on a thumbnail that you may learn in six months of catechism, maybe in junior high, before which you don't need it, and after which you may be finished. It goes on and on and on. And it begins with what God has done for the church generally. And you learn Bible history. What God did for Adam and Eve and Abel and Seth and Noah and Abraham and David and all of the other people of God in the Old Testament. And you learn that three times. First, second, and third grade. Fourth and fifth grade. Sixth and seventh grade. You learn all of what God did in Bible history. Old and New Testament. And then you learn what God has done in the Heidelberg Catechism, formalizing the doctrine of the Bible into a systematic form which is personal and experiential. What God has done for you, 
What's your only comfort in living and in dying? And you answer in the first week of that eighth grade catechism class. I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior. Who? And you know the rest of the answer. And some of you sang it recently in a choir program. Catechism teaches you what God has done in the church, but catechism teaches you what God has done for you in Christ. What explains the fact that you're alive? Regeneration. What explains the fact that you are alive and not Him? Election. Sovereign. Unconditional. Gracious election. What explains that you don't have to pay for your sin? Someone else did as a substitute for me. Why Him? Why God and man as one? That's very important to learn that. And you learn everything about what God has done and what God has done for you. I love the Lord. The fount of life and grace. That's what you learn in catechism. You learn to sing in response to what God has done for you. This is what catechism prepares us to do to make a personal confession of our personal faith. Was yours? Or was your confession of faith a confession of historical faith? And you young people recognize that from catechism. Because you learned in catechism that there are different kinds of faith. There is true faith and there is false faith. And in some churches in the Netherlands about 150 years ago, there was a big debate about what confession of faith is. And some churches allowed young people to confess their faith, but not come to the Lord's table because it wasn't a genuine faith. They weren't sure that they truly were believers. Some of those who confessed their historical faith were allowed to come to the Lord's table, and others who confessed their historical faith were told, no, you must wait until later on. You can make another confession of faith, which is a confession of genuine faith. Supposedly in the Netherlands, there were sensitive Christians who couldn't come to the full confidence that they were God's people, and in sympathy to them, they allowed them to make a kind of halfway confession of faith. Confession of faith. And that debate spilled over into our churches for a little while in the 1970s when one of our congregations asked Synod to appoint a committee to make an introduction to the confession of faith questions and a conclusion to those questions for that occasion of confession of faith. And the committee went to work, decided that make a long story short, we're also going to change the questions to make the questions more personal because the questions don't seem to be personal. And after 10 years, nothing was done. Partly because the minister himself can give an introduction and a conclusion to the confession of faith ceremony, and partly because, and here's the important part, what we confess is personal faith. We're confessing faith. 
We're confessing a promise to live a new and godly life, which is not, I'm going to stop drinking tomorrow, whereas I was drinking before. I'm not going to look at pornography after I make confession of faith, whereas I did before. An outward change of life. No, it's a confession. I am going to live the new life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that is understood by those who are making confession of faith. But here's the point, people of God. When you confess your faith, and catechism prepares us to do that, we're confessing faith. What is faith? You learned that in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Faith is a certain knowledge of all that God revealed to us in His Word, but it's also a confidence that not only to others, but to me also. Not just to them, but to me. God freely grants salvation, remission of sins, and everlasting righteousness. It's mine. And everyone who stands before the congregation to make confession of faith is making confession of personal faith. I belong to Him. And everyone who does that is saying to you, to you, come and listen, please. I want to tell you, that's what God did for my soul. But it's not limited to that one moment when someone makes confession of faith. This is something that the people of God need to do all their lives. Issue an invitation, perhaps not a formal invitation, but an invitation nevertheless, that motions to the people, come, come, please come. I want to tell you what God has done for me. The psalmist invited believers, believers, God-fearers to hear him. He wasn't inviting unbelievers. He didn't look down to the Egyptians or across to the, uh, the Philistines or the other side to the Moabites or north to the Syrians and say to them, I'd like you to hear what God has done for us and for me specifically. He said to believers, I want you to know what God has done. Now there is such a testimony that we make to the unbeliever, and that's important to hear too. A testimony of the very same thing. You want to know of the hope that's in me? I'll tell you about my hope, you say to the unbeliever. And you do that because Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God who didn't glorify God before. And so Paul picks that up in Colossians chapter 4 and says, walk in wisdom with your eyes pointing to others outside of the church. And Peter, in that familiar passage, be ready to give an answer to those who ask you of the hope that's in you. We must make that confession by how we walk and by what we say. The very same confession. If we are silent, God is blasphemed. If we speak, others may be gained. And I want to look for opportunities to do that. I want to pray for opportunities to do that. You ladies who go to the same cashier at the grocery store every week, pray for an opportunity to speak something. You men who go to the gym the same morning, at the same time, every week, you see the same people, pray for an opportunity to speak. When you get on the airplane, and you're sitting by someone for three hours, and they don't put their 
noise-canceling headphones in as a sign, I don't want to talk, then pray for an opportunity to talk about what God has done for you. But that's not this text. This text is the child of God saying, to God-fearers, to people He's comfortable with, to people He feels safe around, I want you to hear what God has done for me. They're God-fearers. That's how the text puts it. Come all ye that fear God. And now we come back to the reading of the psalm in verses 3 and 5 with that word terrible. The very same word is used here, except in a little bit different form. The same word. Awful. Terrible. You, who are so knowledgeable of God in your hearts that you are filled with awe as I am, full of awe, I want you to listen to me. Because I think you will understand what I have to say. They won't. You will. Now come, please, and listen to me. What God has done for me. Picture that. Picture that again in your mind's eye. David, in some setting, probably not in the tabernacle, pointing to the altar, saying to the people gathered around, what a marvelous God he is. And then you mustn't imagine David is doing this as an office bearer. He's doing this as a common member. And you need to see that David didn't wait for an invitation to speak to them. He took the initiative. He sent out the invitation. Come, come. I want you to hear. And what David is doing is creating an atmosphere among his friends and family where they all feel safe talking about what God has done for them. And we can learn from the psalmist here. You mustn't be afraid to make a personal testimony. You mustn't be nervous that personal testimonies are Arminian, but you must understand why the Reformed faith is often warned about personal testimonies. In the first place, because many personal testimonies push the preacher down into the pew and let all of the people of God come to the pulpit, and that's what the worship service was comprised of. And they didn't hear sermons anymore, but personal testimonies. And of course, that's forbidden of us. Perhaps they were nervous or disliked personal testimonies because they often went out of bounds. You want to know what God did for me? And a dramatic story is told of what God did for me and then everyone else was quiet because they didn't have a story that could top the last story. And we mustn't have anything of that either. And sometimes the personal testimonies were such that they were only of a dramatic Saul to Paul-like conversion. You want to know what my life was before God came to me and the dramatic change in one day that I experienced just like Saul to Paul? And those are beautiful stories. The people of God, some of us have stories like that to tell. But those aren't the only stories that people of God have to tell. All of us as children of God, can say what God has done for us. And we who are older, and I don't mean old, but older than young people, 
need to create an atmosphere that we initiate where those who are younger than we are are comfortable talking about God. Don't start here after church. Start today or tomorrow at home in the little circle of your family if you have an earthly family. Or dad, when he opens the Bible, not only says what the Bible means, but what the Bible means for him. And where dad, if dad isn't home for breakfast, comes home for supper, opens the Bible, and says to his wife, Honey, you want to know what God did for me today? I cried to him in deep distress, and he heard my prayer. He didn't turn away my plea. He gave me the strength to keep going, and I didn't want to keep going. You may know that. Children, you want to know what God did for me? Dad says, doesn't need to be dramatic. He tried me. He put me into a net. He took me through the fire. But do you know what, children? He brought me out into a wealthy place, and here I am with you, and your feet under my table, and God is good to us and to me. It does not need to be dramatic. Let the wife say to her husband when he gets home what God did for her. When dad leaves, mom says to the children before they go to school, when they open the Bible and read a verse, what God has done for her and what God did for them the day before. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't need to be dramatic. It's simple. God is good to me. He's so good to me. And then when dad and mom initiate that kind of atmosphere and create that kind of setting at home, when you go to Bible study during the week or young people's society, you open up the Bible and you understand what the Bible means, and then someone dares to say what it means for me. And others say, he dared speak. He wasn't afraid to speak. And I don't need to be afraid either. And then, probably here is the last place, but it ought to be one of the soon places after church on a Sunday morning, after the sermon. You don't talk about Michigan game yesterday. Why? Why? You don't talk about the big buck you missed last week. Why? You can do that tomorrow, another time. Talk about what God has done for you. Create an atmosphere where the others aren't nervous to do that. God is so good to us. Let's talk about that. From a certain point of view, are you even permitted to talk outside the church to the non-Christian about God? If you do not know how to speak to Christians about God, from a certain point of view, is it not hypocrisy to want to speak to them outside, to tell them about the hope that's in you? If you have not told your wife, your husband, your children, your brothers and sisters here, let's humble ourselves, people of God,
We have such a small, small beginning if we have any beginning at all in this. But let's start and repent and do this. Why? Why? I asked that question at the end. Not because it's in the text explicitly, because it isn't. In fact, if you read the text, you say, where do you get that point? By why, I'm not asking, what are we aiming at? What's our goal in this confession of what God has done for us? That's a good question too. We have to think about that. But I'm asking the question, what is it that fuels us? What drives and impels me to speak to you about what God has done for me? I want to give three possibilities. None of them is wrong. The third is the most important. Because I must. There's something about that. I must. David's example here becomes a mandate for us. There are some mandates in the Bible that are very explicit. Thou shalt do this, and then we do it. There are other mandates that come to us by the example of other Christians, believers in the Bible, and this is one of them. David did it. We ought to do it. And Jesus said it. Confess me before men. Let your light shine. Those are all commands we need to obey. Silence comes close to denial if it isn't. But that's not what was in the psalmist here. Second, well, that's what we do as Christians because we're Christians. And there's something to that too. It's just what we are. Christians speak. It's as though you would ask a deer, why do you leap? And the deer say, because God made me a deer. And a bird, why do you fly? And the bird would say, because God made me a bird. And if you'd ask a lion, children, why do you roar? The lion would say, because God made me a lion. And so if you ask a Christian, why do you speak to others about what God did for you? You'd say, because God made me a Christian. That's just who I am. It's in me naturally. And as soon as you say that, you realize that there's something else that's in you very naturally. That's according to your first nature. And your first nature... Never speaks about God. Never speaks. Your first nature is silent. Your first nature is embarrassed. Your first nature wonders what your neighbor is going to think about you. What's my wife going to think has gotten into me? Or my children? They think I've become a pietist? That's your first nature. Your second nature makes you a prophet. And what prophets do is speak. And so there's an element of truth to that too. If someone asks you why, you say, because I must. Because that's who I am. But that doesn't ring true here either, does it? What was it that made the psalmist speak? It was simply because he was so filled with what God had done for him and overwhelmed with the goodness of God to him 
He couldn't be silenced. He wanted you to know so that you could say the same and you together glorify the God of all grace who saved our souls. He couldn't be stopped. God was so good to him. And so the reason, people of God, that we don't often, but rather talk about the ball game or the deer or whatever else we want to talk about, isn't it because... We are not thinking about and meditating on what God has done for us. And what comes out of our mouths isn't it rather a reflection of what's in us. And what's in us when we talk about the game, the deer, or something else is not pretty. And what ought to be in us, filling us, because we've been thinking about it and glorying in it, is that God is so good to me I was in trouble and I cried to him in deep distress and now I want to bless his grace he set me free personal testimony of the saved soul so go home people of God go home and there's one thing you ought not do please do not do today don't talk about why You don't speak about what God has done for your soul and add to your guilt and shame. You may think about that, but don't today talk about that. Talk about what God has done for you and how good God has been to you so that others may say, that's what I want to do too. Christ is mine, and I am rich. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We are ashamed of our sin and sorry. We thank Thee for the Lord Jesus who made an offering and was consumed with Thy wrath because of our sins and who has made us accepted to Thee and approved in Thy sight. And that makes us glad. Father in heaven, open Thou our lips, and we shall sing forth and speak Thy praise into all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.